Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. In this episode, we meet Rosa Parks, known to most as the woman who took a stand by sitting down. In the collective memory, her legacy is confined to that one day. But in hindsight, refusing to give up her seat on a segregated bus was neither her first nor her last fight for social justice. Hindsight. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Don't give up your seat and move to the back. I'm gonna call the police and have you arrested. You may do that. It's the evening of December 1, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, and people are piling onto a bus after a long day at work. Among them is 42-year-old Rosa Parks. She's an assistant tailor who's just clocked out for the day and boarded a bus, thinking it would take her home. Instead, she'd wind up in jail. Her crime? I paid my fare like everybody else. I was tired and took a seat. But when I refused to give up my seat to a white man, well, that's when things changed for me. You see, at that time in America, that was considered a crime. By now, segregation laws had been at work for more than half a century. And the white community especially throughout the American South, was encouraged, even empowered, to enforce those rules and regulations whatever they applied. So on that momentous day more than 65 years ago, Rosa Parks found herself at a crossroads. Give up her seat and walk home, or stand her ground and face the unknown. Her decision had a ripple effect that changed modern America. Overnight, Rosa Parks became a symbol of resistance. Her resolve set in motion the Montgomery bus boycott, an event that ushered in a new phase of the civil rights movement in the United States and brought unprecedented national attention to its leaders. But who was this accidental heroine? This is the story of Rosa Parks, beyond the bus. I was born Rosa Louise McCauley in 1913 in Tuskegee, Alabama. My mother was a schoolteacher and my father built houses. He was away a lot for work until one day he stopped coming around. So my mother, my baby brother Sylvester and I moved in with our grandparents, Rose and Sylvester Edwards. Mother named us after them. Growing up on their farm in Pine Level, Alabama, well, it was an education. During the day, my grandfather took me everywhere with him. I was very quiet and well-behaved, so I was no bother at all. 
I would help him pick fruit and milk the cows, and if the weather was nice, he would take me fishing at the creek. Today, I'm going to teach you some Marcus Garvey. It's really important you learn about the first black nationalist movement. Marcus Garvey was my grandfather's hero. In the evening, he would build a fire while my grandma taught me how to sew. She was always making quilts for us. I tried to do it like she did. Grandma, look, I finished my first quilt. Next one is for you, Sylvester. During the week, my mother had to travel to work as a teacher, so I had to look after my brother. I was home a lot anyway, on account of being sick with chronic tonsillitis. I didn't have many friends, but I was never bored. Living with my grandparents taught me a lot about our family history. Grandfather would tell it to me like a bedtime story, though what he had to say usually kept me up at night. My grandparents were born slaves. Grandfather had it particularly bad. His mother was a house slave, and his father was the white plantation owner. His parents died soon after he was born, and the new overseer of the plantation had it out for him. He beat my grandfather, starved him, humiliated him. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all enslaved people in the United States. Well, not all of them, just those in the Confederacy. In 1865, the Civil War ended in Union victory. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was passed, formally abolishing slavery across the country. But for many, that freedom was only symbolic. My grandmother worked on the Hudson Plantation, and after emancipation, she moved to work inside the master's house instead of in the fields. Their lives didn't drastically change, except now they knew they were free to leave if they wanted to, and they had the right to own land. My grandmother's father purchased land for his family, so when he died, my grandparents inherited it. It's the farm that I grew up on. And though we weren't slaves, not anymore, we did work in Hudson's Field, I remember picking piles of cotton when I was a child. Grandfather may have passed for white, but he was filled with black rage. He was fearless. He'd shake hands with white people and address them by their names instead of Mr. Any act of resistance, big or small, he'd do it. In hindsight, I don't know how he never got in serious trouble. Go on, kids, go play. But don't let me see you around no white kids. He forbade us from playing with white children, as he forbade his daughters from taking domestic jobs in white homes. He insisted they all get an education, and he instilled in all of us a sense of pride and self-respect. Now, Rosa, repeat what I just told you. I shouldn't accept bad treatment from anyone, black or white. What else? No one can take away my dignity. Open unto me love for my hates. 
open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. The hymns and prayers we all knew by heart passed down from our enslaved ancestors. At church, the whole community came together to sing in praise of a just God. The power of our collective belief, it was magical. Inside the church walls, we were all loving, we were all safe. But growing up a black kid in Alabama, and at that time, Lord knows how scared we all truly felt once we stepped outside. Grandpa, what's the KKK? In the 1920s, this notorious white supremacist group was infamous for terrorizing black communities across America, not just the Deep South. And they had the law on their side. Many were politicians, police officers, lawyers, educators, and judges dominating local and state governments. Estimates for national membership in this secret society ranged from three million to eight million. My grandfather used to sleep every night in his rocking chair by the fireplace with his shotgun in his lap. He was ready, just in case. I used to curl up on the floor at the foot of his chair, wrapped in my quilt, I don't know if it was out of fear or if I just wanted to be near, but I knew if he killed a Ku Kluxer, I wanted to be there to see it. I started school when I was six. I say school, but really it was just a one-teacher, one-room schoolhouse for us black kids. And as with all institutions under Jim Crow laws, schools were segregated. Jim Crow laws take their name from an offensive caricature of a black man created by a white actor in the 1830s. It fed on pernicious stereotypes that dehumanized its subject, and it would later evolve into a blanket term for the laws that enforced racial segregation and white supremacy in the American South. They called it separate but equal. Well, they got the separate part right. Now listen, Rosa, when we get there, you got to be quick to sit down. There aren't many benches. Did you bring pencils and papers? We got to bring our own. Yes, I have mine. You should see the school they built for white kids. They got heaters and everything. I'm getting tired. Are we almost there? Almost, but you got to get used to walking. The city provided buses for the white students only. When I was around 10... Walking home from school, a white boy raised his little fist at me and threatened to hit me. So I picked up a brick off the ground. I dare you! He turned and ran away. I think my grandfather would have been proud of me had he still been alive. My grandmother, however, scolded me. Relax, Grandma, I'm fine. I understand now that she was speaking out of fear. Black kids were lynched for much less, but... I would rather be lynched than live to be mistreated and not be allowed to say I don't like it. In 1924, I went to the Montgomery Industrial School for Girls, or as we used to call it, Ms. White's School. 
For the first time, I felt like I was going to a proper school. Miss Alice White was a Christian education reformer from Massachusetts. She had moved to the South and opened the first school for black girls in Alabama. She and her all-white staff paid for that. The local white community shunned them. White supremacists burned her school down. Twice. But each time they rebuilt it and carried on. We learned the usual subjects, but there was a focus on industrial training like cooking, sewing, and nursing. They also taught us that we deserve to be treated with respect and that we can achieve anything. That sentiment also resonated with two other girls at the school, Johnny Carr and Mary Fair Burks. They too grew to play prominent roles in the civil rights movement. I wanted to become a nurse or a social worker. I think I always wanted to help people, but I had to drop out of school when I was 16. Family became my priority. My grandmother died, and my mother was always sick with migraines, so I needed to get a job. I started cleaning houses for white families, but it wasn't long before I got a job as a seamstress in a shirt factory. And then she fell in love. It was the spring of 1931, so that made me, what, 18? Something like that. A friend of mine took me to visit her friend, who worked at the barber shop. He did more than just cut hair. So, gentlemen, I can't begin to tell you how important it is that we raise money for this case. Oh, hello there. I'm Raymond Parks. Everyone calls me Parks, but you can call me anything you like. Raymond was the first real activist I ever met. He reminded me a lot of my grandfather. But he was 10 years my senior, so I resisted getting to know him. But he was persistent. Eventually, he completely won me over. What I admired most about him was his fearlessness. They don't mess with you if you stand your ground. Raymond was a member of the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was established in 1909 to fight Jim Crow laws. Though celebrated today, back in 1930s Alabama, joining the group was akin to a death wish. But Raymond was undeterred, and as a barber, he knew the power of good black barbershop talk. He used it to advocate for the NAACP. When I met him, he was collecting money for the Scottsboro Boys case. Nine black boys, ranging in age from 13 to 19, were arrested on a train and sent to jail today in Scottsboro after two women accused them of rape. There was no evidence they did it. One of the women even changed her testimony, admitting she lied. It made no difference. The all-white jury found them all guilty. The Scottsboro Boys case was a key moment in the civil rights movement. For Raymond and the soon-to-be Mrs. Rosa Parks, it marked the beginning of their lifelong union. They married in the middle of the campaign to save the accused. I was 19 when we got married. We didn't have a big wedding, just my family and closest friends. It was everything we needed. 
I took his name and became Rosa Parks. With Raymond's encouragement, Rosa Parks returned to her studies to get a high school diploma. Raymond supported them on his barber wages. But in the evening, that's when the real work began. We hosted many secret NAACP meetings. Members talked about the Scottsboro Boys and other cases. But Raymond wanted me to stay out of these gatherings. He said it was too dangerous for a woman to get involved. I wasn't afraid, but I didn't argue. Not yet. It took me ten years of being married to an activist to finally become one myself. In 1943, I saw a familiar face in the morning paper. It was Johnny Carr, my classmate from Ms. White's school. The article said she was an NAACP board member. I didn't know they were open to women. I didn't even finish reading it. I was out the door and on my way to the NAACP office. When I got there, I didn't find Johnny. Instead, I walked in on a room full of men talking about the annual election of officers. Membership is important to everybody, and I think... I'll come by another time. Pardon? You want me to stay and take notes? Well, sure, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's how it happened. I walked in hoping to become a member, and I walked out as an employee. E.D. Nixon, the president of the Montgomery chapter, asked me, and I was too shy to say no, so I became his secretary. Initially, my work with Mr. Nixon was collecting data on crimes against the black community. It was hard. I had to read and document the atrocities against black people every day. I volunteered all the spare time I could, but I wanted to do more. I needed to do more. Mr. Nixon had just the right idea. Okay, kids, listen up. We launched a youth division in 1949 to teach and prepare them for activism. We called it the Youth Council, and I became its advisor. With no children of her own, Rosa cherished her time working with the youth. It's also where she felt she could make the biggest impact. I wanted to instill in them all the pride and self-respect I learned in my childhood. Kids are more hopeful than adults. Their energy and sense of wonder and hope are contagious. I finished work quite late one evening. I was tired and just wanted to get home. I took the bus as usual. Only this time I did something different. I promise you I wasn't looking for trouble. According to the Jim Crow laws, blacks had to board the bus, pay the fare to the driver, then get off the bus and board again through the back door. Rosa Parks knew this. She'd been doing it her whole life. The back of the bus was crowded with people. They were practically falling out of the back doors. I wasn't sure where I was going to find a spot, but I went ahead, I boarded, and I paid my fare. But instead of getting off, I turned left 
and walked inside the bus. I could feel every pair of eyes on me, especially the drivers. He told me to get off and re-enter from the back. But I'm already on the bus. What's the point? The step well is too packed for me to squeeze through. It's the end of the day. We all just want to go home. So what did it matter how I got on the bus? Well, of course it mattered. I dropped my purse in front of a seat in the white area just so I could sit while I picked it up. I was really pushing my luck, but sometimes you just gotta make a point. Segregation was humiliating, but I got off that bus. People were tired and wanted to get home. I understood that. The bus driver, however... Have fun walking. <laughs> the driver, James Blake, closed the doors of the bus and drove off before Rosa Parks could get back on. What a horrible man. I'm never riding with that driver again, even if it's the last bus on earth. The next time Rosa Parks met that bus driver, their conflict would become a nationwide sensation. In 1945, Rosa Parks decided to exercise her right under the 19th Amendment and registered to vote. But being black, she had to take a literacy test. Three pages in all these legal questions. This test is designed to disqualify us. <sighs> okay, I can do it. I handed in my test, and immediately they told me I had failed. I went back a second time. Rejected again. They took half a look at my answers, crumpled the paper, and threw it in the trash. I went back a third time. There you go. I wrote down the questions and my answers, so if you fail me without telling me what I got wrong this time, I'm going to get a lawyer. I passed. I got my voting card in the mail the following week. Back at the NAACP office, I began getting involved in cases instead of only collecting data. Some of those cases haunted me for a long time. Like Reese Taylor, a 24-year-old black mother who was gang-raped while walking home in 1944. It reminded me of my own experience. In a journal entry unearthed years after her death, Rosa Parks recounted an attempted assault by a white neighbor while she was housekeeping for a white family when she was 18. The NAACP sent me to investigate Reese's case. We met at her home, but I couldn't stay with her for long. The sheriff stopped by and demanded I leave. He said he didn't want any trouble in his town. A woman was gang-raped and I was the trouble he was worried about. <laughs> I left, but her story stayed with me. We need to do something for Mrs. Taylor. The police are not even investigating the case. We have to take matters into our own hands now. I was infuriated. 
Once I got back to Montgomery, I launched the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice, and we got people to write hundreds of protest letters to the governor. But justice was never served for Reese. None of the men were prosecuted, not even the ones who confessed to the crime. Maddening. By the time I was 42, I had been working at the NAACP for 12 years, but what did I have to show for it? Yes, I loved working with the youth, but nothing was changing. Mrs. Dewar, how do you like these trousers? Yes, I think they'll fit you just fine. Call you Virginia? Uh, sure. Virginia Dewar and her husband Clifford were some of our white allies in Montgomery. They advocated for racial equality, and they suffered for it. The white community in Montgomery rejected them. Virginia used to bring her daughters in the hand-me-downs she needed altered. They used to stay with me in the evenings while I sewed. We would talk, and we became quite friendly. Of course it interests me, but I'm afraid I can't afford it. What? You paid for it? Virginia raised money to send me to a workshop in Tennessee. It was about preparing community leaders for a smooth transition to a non-segregated school system in the South. Oh, Mrs. Dewar, this is incredible. In 1954, the Supreme Court had declared the segregation of schools unconstitutional. A year later, Rosa Parks hopped on a bus to Tennessee. I was out of my comfort zone. I was surrounded by strangers and, well, it took a little while for me to find my voice. There were about 50 of us at the workshop. Teachers, activists, students. A mix of black and white people. We ate, debated, and even sang together. Oh, you really don't have to. It's so surreal having my breakfast prepared by a white person. That kind of thing was unheard of in the South then. I admit, when I first arrived here, I didn't know what to expect. I was a bit shy, and I didn't know just how comfortable I could get talking about our struggles in front of white people. <laughs> this has been an incredible experience, one that I couldn't have had anywhere else. It's been a while since I've laughed so hard. It was worth the two weeks in pay I lost to be there. Rosa Parks returned to Montgomery hopeful and energized. It didn't last. Oh, what have they done to him? How could anyone do this to a child? In 1955, the summer Emmett Till turned 14, he stayed with relatives in rural Mississippi. It was a very different place to his life in Chicago, and his mother had warned him that the whites in the South weren't as tolerant to his joking around as they were in the North. Emmett was just being a kid. Whatever he may have said to that cashier, he meant no harm. But she was white and her family... They made him pay for it. They kidnapped him in the night, lynched him. 
How lonely, how terrified he must have been. His mother insisted on having an open casket and a public funeral. She wanted the world to see what they did to her son. Emmett Till's murder became a rallying cry for the civil rights movement. That November, a speaking tour about the case arrived at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. It was hosted by its pastor, 26-year-old Martin Luther King, Jr. Rosa Parks sat in the audience and listened. Tell the truth, shame the devil. Speak on it. That's right. Good morning, Montgomery. And what chilly weather we're having on this December day. It was like any other day. I woke up, I went to work. At the end of the day, I left. I walked to the bus stop and waited. But this would be no ordinary day. It was December 1st, 1955, and Rosa Parks was about to start a new chapter in the American Civil Rights Movement. The first bus that came around was too crowded, so I decided to wait for the next one. I boarded, and I sat in no man's land. Buses were still divided into three parts. Ten front seats for white people, ten back seats for black people, and between them, sixteen unreserved seats for whomever came first. This section was known as no man's land. That just meant that if the white area filled up and a white person didn't have a seat, they'd get priority. Bus drivers had the authority to enforce segregation laws. I watched as a rush of white people boarded the bus. All but one found a place to sit. The driver told me and three other black people to give up our seats and move to the back. We didn't move. He stopped the bus and walked to us. The other three got up and moved back. I didn't. Do you not hear me? I could hear him all right. But all I could see was Emmett Till's lynched body. People say I didn't get up because I was a tired old lady. I wasn't old. I was 42. But I was tired. I was tired of this happening to us over and over again. I was tired of giving in. And I was not giving up my seat that day. I said, move! I looked up and saw his face. Oh, what luck. It was the same driver who'd kicked Rosa Parks off the bus 12 years earlier for not re-entering the bus from the back. I'll call the police. You do what you gotta do. He went down to a phone booth and called the police. I was taken into custody and charged with refusing to obey orders of a bus driver. Can I have a sip of water, please? Can I make a phone call? Will someone please tell me what's going to happen to me? Rosa Parks was eventually allowed to phone her husband and mother to tell them what had happened. By then, news of her arrest had spread, and her boss, E.D. Nixon, and the Durs were on their way to bail her out. No, I didn't know that anything was going to come out of my refusal to give up my seat. I did know it rarely ended well. Nine months earlier, 
Fifteen-year-old Claudette Colvin refused to give up her seat to a white person. Two cops dragged her off the bus, put her in handcuffs, and threw her in jail. Some activists wanted to use her arrest to launch the bus boycott, but decided the teenager was too immature, vulnerable to withstand the attention. I guess by the time I was arrested, the black community had been pushed to the boiling point. I never anticipated what happened next. I had a few days before my trial on December 5th, 1955. I still had to work, of course, but I took a cab to get there instead of the bus. And then things really started to pick up. Has anyone seen her? I think she's coming. Oh, look, there she is. The Women's Political Council had heard about what happened and called for a one-day bus boycott on the day of her trial. By the time Rosa Parks had heard about it, they'd already circulated leaflets across the city. I tell you, if you want something done fast, ask a woman. 75% of bus riders in Montgomery were black. I didn't see a single black person on board any of the buses that drove past the court that day. By the way, I pleaded not guilty, but was found guilty and fined $14. We had a community meeting at church later. About 5,000 people came. Raymond! Raymond! There was no place in the church for all of us, so they set up loudspeakers in the street for everyone to hear. When I showed up, they gave me a standing ovation. I was not used to this kind of attention. And then we got down to business. People felt a one-day boycott was not enough. More needed to be done. From there, the Montgomery Improvement Association was born. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was elected president. And that was when I formally met him. This is just the beginning. 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 We unanimously agreed that the bus boycott would not end till our demands were met. Courteous treatment on buses, the right to sit anywhere, and to have black bus drivers on the routes we usually take. I thought we were being very reasonable. The black community really came through on the boycott. Anyone who could do something did it. People who owned a vehicle volunteered to drive people around. Even taxi drivers reduced their fares. The MIA set up a carpooling system you could set your watch to. I volunteered there. I didn't have a specific role. I would take calls, connect riders with drivers, distribute clothes and shoes, whatever was needed. When the bus company denied our demands, the boycott was extended for another week, and then another. The carpooling system transported tens of thousands of people to and from work every day. Unknowingly, white women helped with the boycott as well, by driving their maids to and from their homes. They couldn't afford to lose them. The police tried to stop it, of course. They'd arrest people waiting for black-owned cabs and intimidate black cab drivers into enforcing a minimum charge. 
I lost my job. So did Raymond. The boycott was costing the city $3,000 per day, and there would be consequences. In January 1956, one month into the boycott, several black churches were bombed, as well as the homes of Martin Luther King Jr., E.D. Nixon, and Reverend Robert Gretz. Reverend Gretz was one of our white allies. He supported the boycott, opened his church for our meetings, and drove his car to help people get around. In February, about a hundred of us were arrested and charged with conspiring to interfere with a public business. That's how they viewed the boycott, not as a reaction to injustice, but as a conspiracy. But we held firm. Even later, when carpools were declared illegal again, we didn't budge. The boycott worked. In November 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court declared segregation on Montgomery buses unconstitutional. The ruling took effect on December 20, 1956, 381 days after the boycott started. But that wasn't the end of it. Far from it. White supremacists were not happy at all that we could sit where we pleased. We were constantly under attack. People actually shot at buses in the middle of the city. Some of them even tried to form a whites-only bus line. And for Rosa Parks and her husband, there was no work. No one wanted to hire them. We have to leave. There is no place for us in Alabama anymore. My mother, Raymond, and I moved to Detroit in 1957 to live near my brother Sylvester and his family. We were poor and we were sick a lot, but it was good to be around the whole family. Raymond and I never had children, but I had that motherly love for all 13 of my nieces and nephews. Sylvester had planted a large garden to feed his family, and on Sundays, we would pick vegetables and fruit from it and gather in the kitchen, cook dinner, and eat together. That time spent with family was food for my soul. Her body, however, was ailing. An ulcer, a tumor in her throat. Hospital bills were adding up. Rosa Parks struggled to find a paying job in the Detroit chapter of the NAACP, but she needed a college degree to work there. We did receive some help from the NAACP, eventually. Of course, I would have appreciated a job. I volunteered more than 12 years of my life for the organization, and I was willing to do it all over again with the MIA. But I was never hired. Still, I was grateful for the help. As the civil rights movement gained momentum, the reserved, quiet Rosa Parks found herself pushed to the background, or perhaps just left there. But you'd never hear that from her. Anyway, enough about my financial struggles. Thankfully, in 1961, our luck began to turn. Raymond finally found a job at a barber shop, and I started sewing again. 
We worked long hours, and our salaries were humble, but they were enough to live on. But of course, once an activist, always an activist. I marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr. from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. And I was there when Malcolm X gave his historic message to the grassroots speech in Detroit. The white man. He's an enemy to all of us. I know some of you all think that some of them aren't enemies. Time will tell. I met him a couple of times after that, too. He was my hero. This is Congressman Kanye's office. How may I help you? I got my first political job when I was 52. Don't ever think it's too late to start something new. I had met John Conyers, a civil rights lawyer, when he was running for Congress, and I admired his politics. So I endorsed him and volunteered in his campaign. I even got Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to endorse him. When he won, he hired me. This was a mutually beneficial relationship. While Conyers gave Rosa Parks a steady income, she provided unmatched experience in social work. A winning team. Officially, I was a receptionist and office assistant. But Congressman Conyers trusted me to do more. I helped organize housing for the homeless, and when he was away, I ran the office. He invited me to accompany him to events, and I was able to miss work to attend events I was invited to. I worked with him till I retired. I also found a new personal direction in my life. I discovered Buddhism. I went to yoga classes with my nieces and nephews. It became a bit of a family ritual. I meditated and prayed. Rosa had a good 12 years of prosperity, stability, and nationwide recognition during her time with Conyers. But between 1977 and 1979, she suffered great losses. Throat cancer took my Raymond. Three months later, my brother Sylvester died. Two years later, my mother died one after the other. I wasn't feeling my best either. For the first time in my life, I felt truly alone. But there was one last project I needed to see through. It is my pleasure to welcome you all to the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development. It had been a dream of mine to start an organization to help black children achieve their potential. Once I was sure the institute was running successfully, I retired. I was 75, and I thought I had fulfilled my calling. Rosa Parks continued to travel. She accepted every invitation to give talks and interviews on the civil rights movement. She also wrote her autobiography. In 1996, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1999, President Bill Clinton also awarded her the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor given by the U.S. legislative branch. She made a C and a degree 
that everyone should be free. God bless you, Rosa. In October 2005, at 92 years old, Rosa Parks died at her home in Detroit after years of battling progressive dementia. Her body was flown to Montgomery, Alabama, for a public memorial before being flown to Washington, D.C. She became the first woman ever and only the second African-American to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. Finally, her body was returned to her adopted home, Detroit. Tens of thousands of people pay their respects to Rosa Parks at each stop of the journey to her final resting place. During her life, Rosa Parks was given more than two dozen honorary doctorates and more awards than her shells could hold for her years of activism. Still, for all she achieved, interviewers only ever wanted to talk to her about that day on the bus. But Rosa Parks was more than that singular act of defiance on a December evening in 1955. She supported Planned Parenthood and sat on its board. She called for the end of US imperialism in Vietnam. She condemned the use of the death penalty. And at 88, days after the 9-11 attacks, she signed a letter calling on the United States to seek justice, not vengeance. While the echo of her quiet refusal can still be heard today, Rosa Parks stood for justice and equality for all. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by South Podcasts. Their team is producer Rana Dawood, associate producer Basant Samhunt. Sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Assembly sound editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Summer Nazif. Research and interviews by Joanne Bustani. Fact-checking by Tarak Ayub. Special thanks to Herb Boyd and Jean Theo Harris for speaking to us about the character. Rosa Parks is played by Elena Maria. Extra voices played by Jason Unwoga and Ramsey Testel. Voice coaching by Zayn Ganma. Recording by Audio Process and TVC Soho Studios. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Lynn Enwin. Script editing by Danilo Hawaleshka. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's Director of Digital Innovation and Programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.